Welcome back to Art Watch Podcast. I hope you are all thoroughly enjoying this spooky season. Um, I'm just going to pre-apologize. I'm talking a little quieter because my building has quiet hours and supposedly the echo is pretty bad between the rooms. So if I sound a little bit whispery, that's why. Um, but anyway, the weather in New York is a bit up and down. So my reptilian body is not the happiest, but I can rest easy with the warmth for a little bit longer. Um, that being said, I know all of my Texas friends are still boiling, so I guess at least I don't have to deal with that. Um, we are getting into the halfway point of the semester, so if you're a student or you're a professor, you should definitely check out the writing resources that I made uh, back in like December-ish and early this year. And one of them actually features Caitlin, who is also a professor. And we go over how to write a visual analysis essay. And then in the next two episodes, I talk about historical context as well as the comparison essay. So definitely check those out because I know we're getting to that point where everybody's writing essays now. So they are definitely helpful tools for audio learners. And each episode is a step-by-step -step guide on how to write the different art historical essays. So definitely check it out. And speaking of Caitlin, thanks for being such a wonderful patron. And for all those other listeners out there, if you'd like to become a patron, head on over to patreon.com slash artwatchpodcast. And you can learn about the fun different levels. Uh, you can get something like being shouted out on air or close friends on Instagram. And then at others, you can actually get original art made by me, either sun prints or Polaroids. And eventually when I get my dark room up and running, you will actually get black and white prints. Um, but yeah, definitely check it out. And if you don't want a monthly commitment, but you'd still like to donate financially, you can actually donate on the Artwatch Podcast website. So that's www.artwatchpodcast.com. And you can click the support Artwatch button. But I know that a lot of my listeners are students, so I understand you might not be able to contribute financially. But honestly, sharing with your friends, giving a rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening to, is really vital to the growth of our So taking those steps would be wonderful. If you haven't already given podcast a review, I would love it if you did. And I really hope that you like the podcast. I mean, I would hope so if you're one of my continuing listeners. So I would assume I'm doing something right. Um, but yeah, definitely leave a review. Make sure you follow on social media. Um, my handle is the same on Twitter, Instagram. And now TikTok, it's at Artwatch Podcast. So you can follow, send the page to a friend, and make sure you save and like on posts that you really appreciate. It helps me deal with the algorithm. I know the dreaded algorithm of getting my content out there. So trying to reach new audiences and y'all are wonderful. So thank you for thank you for continuing to support the podcast. Um, I really, truly appreciate it. But moving on, we are getting to the holiday season and Halloween is probably one of my favorite holidays of the year. So 
I thought it would be fun to do a giveaway for Halloween and maybe have a couple more throughout the rest of, I'm still thinking in semesters, throughout the rest of the semester. Um, for Halloween, I thought it would be really neat to do a limited edition Halloween Art Watch podcast themed coffee cup. The design will feature a Zompantli with, of course, Art Watch branding and a fun little quote, Zompantli and chill. Um, if you haven't already, you can check out the Instagram page and TikTok and you can check it out, see what the actual product will look like. I designed it myself, so I really hope you like it. Um, but basically, there are going to be two winners to this, one from Instagram and one from TikTok. Obviously, no purchase necessary to enter the giveaway. And to enter, all you'll have to do is follow the Artwatch podcast account, either the Instagram or TikTok, and make sure you like the original giveaway post, as well as tag a friend in the comments. And then each comment on the original post will count as an entry, so you can tag as many friends as you want. Um, and then if you share the original post and tag me in your Instagram story, it will count as one additional entry, but you can only do that one once. And then if you're on TikTok, you can either duet or stitch the video, and that will count as one additional entry as well. Um, you can only win one cup, but that doesn't mean you can't enter on both platforms. It just means if you happen to win both, then you'll only get one, and I'll go to the next winner. Um, but yes, so entries will be taken until Saturday, October 29th at 5 p.m. EST, so Eastern Standard Time. Winners will be drawn at random. I'm actually going to put everybody's handles um, on Instagram and then TikTok, of course, in two separate Excel sheets, and I will do a random number generator. So if you are that lucky number, then you get a really cool color-changing coffee cup, um, and I really hope you like it because I'm very excited about it. And... Yes, okay, so winners will be drawn at random and announced on Monday, October 31st at 12 p.m. EST. Obviously the best day of the year. It's Halloween. Um, and then you'll have until, if you are a winner, you'll have until Wednesday, November 2nd at 12 p.m. to claim your prize. So unfortunately, if you don't claim your really awesome prize by then, I'm going to have to pick a new winner. But I don't think that anybody would take too long to claim it because it's a really, really cool color-changing coffee cup. Um, I also have official rules on the Artwatch Podcast blog. So you can do that at www.artwatchpodcast.com slash blog. And you'll see the post for the official rules. And uh, yeah, so on that note, make sure you're following me on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. And of course, now we're even on TikTok. The handle, again, is the same for each platform at Artwatch Podcast. It's a really cool coffee cup. Definitely enter the contest. Tell your friends. I'm trying to build my following on social media. So this is how I'm going to start to achieve that. But um, on to today's content. Basically, if you have already seen the Instagram post, then you know that today we'll be talking about Great British Bake Off. Um, and if you haven't seen the Instagram post, then you probably know that from the title of the episode. And basically, today we're going to talk about the disaster of an episode that was, quote, Mexican week on the Great British Bake Off. 
don't get me wrong, I love the show. I know that not everything is culturally accurate. And I think that before Mexican week, there was the Japan week debacle. I think that was last season um, and how bad that one was. So yes, obviously we know that England is a colonizing force, which means that the likelihood of any non-Western culture getting an accurate representation is already pretty slim. Um, what does it mean for high-profile Western shows such as Great British Bake Off to, or rather, with a broadly white audience to depict non-white cultures so inaccurately? And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. The short answer is that it basically upholds white ideological viewpoints that reinforce racial and geopolitical hierarchies. By this point, you might be thinking, but Tori, there were POC on the episode. How can they also be upholding these hierarchies? Well, as we've seen in recent critiques of people of color communities, we aren't exempt when it comes to perpetuating colonialism or even Eurocentric thinking. There's lots of really wonderful articles out there. You can follow some really great uh, creators, and there's there's lots of critiques happening, especially within Latinidad. Um, and speaking of, let's use that as an example. So during the rise of Black Lives Matter, younger generations called out the racism and even colorism within the global Latin American community. Parents, grandparents, and maybe even our siblings and cousins can internalize this colonial and often white supremacist mindset. So for example, fair skin is often prized and blackness and bloodlines is often erased. And Mexico is a great example of that. Um, Typically, even though there was an Afro-Mexican population, if you had that heritage, it was completely wiped from your history. So there's this active effort to, to erase that part of your heritage. Um, and then for Afro-Latina individuals, this issue is actually exacerbated because not only do they have to deal with colorism in Latinidad, they also have to face anti-blackness in Latinidad. So if you're not familiar with the term, oh, sorry, term, term colorism, it actually refers to like the lightness of your skin. And it typically goes back to the purity of bloodlines. Um, super problematic. But I know that typically if you are more fair in your skin tone, basically more white presenting, you typically have an easier time, you're treated better. And then the darker you get, if you look more um, I guess mestizo or indigenous, then chances are you're probably not going to be treated so well. But then you get the double whammy of if you are Afro-Latina, so not only are you, like, discriminated against because of colorism within Latinidad, but you're also discriminated against because you have Black heritage and it's visibly present. Um, so basically there's no space in which Afro-Latina people can safely and comfortably exist within Latin American circles or sometimes even in Black circles. I've heard of some creators talking about how their identity is often questioned with their Black friends as well as their Latin American friends. So it's a really troubling concept. So while the very few people of color on the show struggle with their own fight against a colonial mindset, they can and did still reproduce this ideological framework. Now, I know you also must be questioning, what the hell does this have to do with baking? <laughs> but often, one of the only ways that people can exp 
experience different cultures is through the consumption of food. There's the caveat that foods from foreign countries are forced to adapt to the locale. So as much as I love Thai and Indian food, the likelihood that I've ever had a non-Americanized version of these cuisines is pretty low. But that doesn't mean that I can't actually go out on my own and study the cuisine from people that have that cultural knowledge or even ask a friend to teach me about their family's traditions. I absolutely love doing this because not only do I learn about something that I appreciate, but I also become close with my friends from by learning from them. So obviously you can't totally rely on your friends teaching you everything about their culture because one, that's exhausting for them and it's entirely not fair. So it needs to be something that is done through kindness and mutual respect. And one of my favorite things to do is actually to cook with friends and learn each other's family's recipes. So sometimes with my other friends of color, we talk about cultural significance, like maybe the association of this food with the seasons or different religious festivals or maybe holidays. Um, sometimes it could just be as simple as our grandparents really liked to cook this dish because it was one that everyone helped with. I love teaching my friends how to make tamales because it is huge in Mexican culture. And it's also very labor-intensive, so you need a lot of people. But I like to help you make everything. And when I invite friends to do this, they're typically surprised at how much work goes into making these dishes. Because it it's something that is seemingly so simple, um, even though there's like pack full of flavor. But then actually seeing the process, um, I think people gain like a new appreciation for the work that goes into creating this dish. So I think a counter argument to everything I just said might be the vast amount of fusion food that we see here in the States, especially in big cities like New York, Houston, Austin, and Los Angeles. But when we go to these places, we know that we aren't getting anything traditional. We know and we already accept that we're getting something that culturally doesn't make any sense. And sometimes we get delicious food pairings like Mex-Mex, Mexican-Korean, Thai-Italian. The list could literally go on forever. And I love fusion food because I can get my favorite flavors in one dish. But of course, I would never, ever say that Tex-Mex is Mexican. Like, is Mexican food. Absolutely, I would not. And to my fellow Texans, I will fight y'all on this. Tex-Mex is not Mexican. It is delicious. And I could eat it every freaking day. It is not Mexican food. It's a cross between Mexican, Native American, and like this American rancher style cuisine. But enough with that. I'll get off of my soapbox, I promise. Food has the ability to bring us closer, but only if we're willing to truly experience and understand this knowledge and cultural history that we're gaining. So it also, sorry, so shows that center food is the main content or the main premise of the entire plot. They need to remember this. Now. Not that I've laid the groundwork for all of this. Let's get back to Great British Bake Off. First thing, I'm going to do my best not to make jabs at their accents and pronunciation of Spanish food. Or, sorry, Spanish language. Um, the Spanish accent can already be difficult for English speakers. I'm like, I am still learning Spanish as an adult and I still get tripped up because English is my first language. So I can only imagine that for people in the UK who already have a wide range of accents, find speaking Spanish even more difficult than most Americans. 
However many accents throughout the U.S. are a lot flatter and choppier than our U.K. counterparts who have this more rounded but also sometimes choppiness to it. Um, the pronunciation of letters really changes your the way your palate develops. And so I can like just on like a physiological um, level, I know that it can be difficult. So in contrast from English, Spanish is actually a very fluid language. And when we look at Mexico in particular, there's also the blending of Spanish and the many different Nahua dialects. And if you've ever tried to speak a Nahua language, then you know that it is significantly different from Romance languages like Spanish or even Germanic languages like English. It's a completely different approach. So I want to I'll do my best not to make fun of them. It was, it was still kind of funny because some of the mispronunciations were just like chef's kiss emoji. But of course, I wasn't actually triggered by their butchering of the Spanish language. Now, that might be different for native Spanish speakers. But again, I'm trying to be nice because I know that my Spanish and French accents aren't perfect. But of course, I'm trying. And I think some of them are trying. Not all of them. I think um, one of the hosts... I always forget his name, but he's he's the bald guy with who is in Alice in Wonderland, like the one with Johnny Depp. I feel bad. I always forget his name, even though they literally put it on there. You, you know who I'm talking about. Like, he, I don't think, was trying at all. He was trying to be a comedian, and it wasn't funny. It was just bad. Um, anyways. So, with all that in mind, let's start on the harrowing journey that was Mexican week. And I, I'm, like, doing scare quotes around Mexican, because obviously... It was not Mexican at all. Um, so we'll sort of watch it together and overview some key points and issues. I'm not going to do like a play-by-play, -play, but we'll hit the major themes. All right. First off, that opener was just bad. Like, so overdone. But since, you know, we're talking about the episode, let me go ahead and, and play it back for you. Hello, Noel. Are you excited for Mexican Week? I'm really excited for Mexican Week. I'm absolutely pumped. You know, I don't feel like we should make Mexican jokes. People do ask. Well, no Mexican jokes at all. Oh, exactly. What, not even what? Not even what? Like, come on. We we have all heard the Juan joke before. Probably since we were, like, five. Like, it, it just lacked creativity. I feel like there were so many, like, funnier jokes that you could have made related to baking that you know like would have actually been funny or at least funny and i feel like their brand is funny baking jokes and they should they should probably stick to it something that struck me as odd is the fact that they had to preface it we shouldn't make mexican jokes because people would get mad this seems like the writers wanted to make a racist joke and then brushed it off as if the general public was too sensitive to hear it definitely is sort of reminiscent of that like boomery snowflake public like rhetoric maybe i'm reaching maybe i'm not you can tell me I, I genuinely would love to hear your thoughts now if you aren't familiar with great british bake-off or as it's called in the united states on netflix great british baking show um the episode is sort of you know it's um sorted around three different challenges the first one they have like um, just sort of a, a general introduction into whatever it is they're doing and this week happened to be obviously since it's mexican week they're doing a, a sweet bread pan dulce and the second 
task that they have is the technical challenge where they have a recipe that they've never seen before and they basically have to do it on the fly. First one that they do, they typically create their own recipe. They're, they've been given a heads up. They have time to make it themselves. They do a little bit of research. So the difference between these first two challenges is that first one, they're supposed to have done some research. They're supposed to have done some sort of background knowledge gaining, whatever you want to call it, so that they can successfully create some sort of traditional pan dulce. And then again, that second challenge, they're given something that they've never made before. They have to do it. They've never practiced. It's usually something that is technically complicated. And then the final round, so the third round, is what's called the showstopper. And it's similar in the, to the first in that they pre-plan what they're going to do. They've probably made it at home at least once or twice. And they're supposed to have also done some sort of background research into not just the the bake that they're making, but the theme as well. Um, and again, this week is obviously Mexican week, so they should have been researching Mexican culture and Mexican cuisine. So the first challenge of this episode was pan dulce, and I absolutely love pan dulce. And when my friends and I actually did a game night recently, we took a note from TikTok and did passion PowerPoint presentations. And I literally did a presentation on pan dulce and then, of course, the art of mole and tamales. And Mexico has such a rich regional production of all of their foods, particularly with pan dulce, mole, and tamales. But something that struck me during this challenge was that one of the bakers opted for making his concha cakey. Like he literally said more cakey because he didn't like how dry they are. Like that is literally how they are supposed to be. They're supposed to be a little dry, a little less sweet because these are supposed to go with your coffee, your champurado, or even your hot chocolate. Um, You wouldn't you wouldn't make biscotti cakey because it's too dry because it's supposed to go in your coffee. So so like you can't you can't rewrite what it is because you don't like it. Like that that defeats the purpose of this task. Also just recreating the dish in general. That being said, his design of the cactus was actually super cute, but I I am very mad that his sugar crust that he created didn't go over the whole roll. Um, he did flavors of like lime and and I forget what else, but I don't personally think that that would work with the concha, um, especially since like a lot of the conchas that I've had, they have some sort of like cinnamon or like like a hint of cinnamon or a hint of nutmeg, something like something spiced like that in the dough it's in like the bread itself and so um that could just be like the the regional version that i have had but i don't think that lime would go well with that or just that i don't think lime would go well with coffee <laughs> like coffee and citrus is not a good mix like i don't know about you but i don't i don't go from eating like a lemon square to drinking coffee <laughs> Like, I don't think it would work. Maybe that's just my taste, my, my taste buds, but, um, 
Yeah, there there also was a contestant that made little elote conchas, which were super cute. Um, there actually is already a type of pan dulce that look like elotes, or they're called elotes. Um, and so they're, they're in the shape of like a little corn. And she was making them into a concha, which I'm pretty sure like I've seen before, but I've, I've more so seen like the actual like elote pan dulce where it's like it has... It's the sweet bread. It has a sugar dusting on top instead of like that gooey cookie topping. Um, and then in the center, it's, it's it has a filling. And most conchas I've seen and eaten do not have a filling. Her filling was corn and coconut custard. Not sure if I would have gone that route, but um, yeah, I mean, like her her, I think. I think this contestant, I think she had said she was Malaysian. I know coconut is like a big part of their cuisine. So maybe she was trying to do like a fusion between like Malaysian and Mexican. So you have the corn from Mexico. You have like coconut from like Malaysia. I don't know. But I don't, I don't know if that, like those would actually work together. I would be interested to try it for myself. Um, but I'm going to dock points from production for missing a huge opportunity to literally call her conchas elote conchas and they called it corn on the cob which that really refers to more like country or cajun or even creole cooking i've i don't they missed a wonderful opportunity to just add in a little bit of spice into that well maybe spice isn't the right word you get what I'm trying to say. Like, they, they could have pulled a little bit more from the culture and, and called it elote. Like, I'm sure she probably saw this if she was researching it. Um, if she saw, like, the corn conchas. So, like, I don't understand why they didn't do that. <laughs> but um, I think, actually, one of my favorite that was made for this round was the guy that made chocolate, coffee, cinnamon, and vanilla flavor profile probably closest to the actual concha and he even um went like the extra step and put like a little like shell on top of the the shell um grooving on the on the concha but again he like the first guy said that he was trying to make it like a cake and not a bread because he didn't like how dry it was and it's like if we're just gonna go to the root of of the board itself, like or of, of like pandel say itself, pan equals bread, pastel equals cake. So although pandel say is sweet bread and cake is technically a sweet bread, the two are very different. And I really don't understand why they feel the need to turn their conches into cakes. They're not cakes. They're not meant to be cakes. Um, and then after this, they get into like the brief. Is Mexico a real place joke? Which, like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> How was that funny? Wow. Like, I can't. What? But anyway, so a lot of, the, since a lot of the bakers chose conchas as their pen dulce, I thought it would, you know, be an interesting way to talk about the history of conchas. So, pen dulce itself actually dates back to pre-Hispanic times, but then European baking techniques and the use of refined sugar was introduced 
course, through the Spanish, and then we begin the journey to modern-day Pendulce. So food already in pre-Columbian culture was part of ritual and status, so naturally the Spaniards took this and redefined it for the criollos, or like the elite Creole class, right? Um, so the major issue at this point in history for the Spanish colonizer was the fact that initially wheat couldn't really last in the Mexican climate, and it wasn't until the Spaniards expanded northward that they were able to find a cooler climate that the wheat could tolerate. And eventually, as this farming practice took hold, wheat became a larger part of the diet in Mexican people. And so, at first, of course, it was a staple for the elite. They couldn't live without their wheat-based bread, and they had they had to have it. And so, eventually, over time, it trickles down into the lower classes, and it became sort of like a staple material. Um, baking, at this point, obviously starts to rely a lot on wheat, and it becomes a little bit semi-sweet. So, we have that cross between uh the not so sweet pre-columbian and with the hint of sweet uh spanish and then we get french so a lot of people don't know that in addition to the indigenous and spanish roots of pendulce there's actually quite a lot of french influence French immigration to Mexico actually dates back to the 17th century, so we can only assume that there was some type of cultural exchange occurring and different foods were being impacted by this. The various sources that I was able to find related to food history, um, it talks about a cultural exchange of French and even Dutch immigrants taking back like these recipes that they learned in Mexico to their home country and then sort of coming back. And it was this continue exchange, continuous exchange of, of culture through cuisine. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so for a brief moment in history, France actually tried to conquer and occupy Mexico. And Napoleon Bonaparte placed the Austrian-born Archduke Maximilian I as the Emperor of Mexico, but it was really an effort to legitimize French power as sort of like an imperial nation. So a decent amount of people from France came to Mexico during this time, and so we get more of a French influence. Um, now, all the sources, again, I could find, they claim that the modern De Concha, as we know, of course, as we know it today, began sometime between the arrival of French immigrants in the 17th century, and then that brief moment in history where France tries to impose an empire in Mexico. And that is a huge gap in time. So obviously different iterations of conchas throughout Mexico were probable, or maybe even the timelines themselves aren't accurate. But French influence was key, regardless of whenever it was introduced. Um, it was key in making pan dulce across the board even sweeter. So this was even sweeter than the Spanish influence. Um, and so the coach, sorry, I'm reading too many words at the same time. But the concha as we know it today is this yeasted sweet bread, kind of like a brioche, not quite like a brioche. So then again, like there again, we're getting that it's not really French. It's not really Spanish. It's not fully indigenous. It's somewhere a mix of the three. 
And then you also get that cookie topping flavored with either vanilla, cinnamon, or chocolate. And it's typically brightly colored. I've seen yellow, pink, white, and brown for chocolate. Um, those are the, the common colors that you see in conchas. And then, of course, to make it a concha, it has to have that shell-like grooving. So before it's baked, the sugar cookie crust portion of the concha is sort of um, indented to look like the surface of a shell. So if the concha itself has this long history that's rooted in cultural blending, why are so many people upset about this episode, you might be thinking? Well, it goes back to changing really the entire base of the pendulce from bread to cake, simply because you don't like it. It's one thing to mix up the flavors, like a lot of them did, even if they don't necessarily sound appetizing, in my opinion. Um, but it's another to change the entire base of a dish. You wouldn't change the essential nature of a croissant, or if you want to get real technical, croissant. Um, you wouldn't change the base of a biscotti, and you wouldn't even change the various British puddings, right? So why would you do it to a Mexican pastry? And it really comes back to it's this unconscious way of saying that non-Western cuisine is wrong and it needs to be altered, and by extension, saying that an entire demographic of people must change to make you, the colonizer, colonizing force, more comfortable. And that message is even stronger when it's coming from something like this show, which is literally called the Great British Bake Off, where the racial and political power structures are at play only favor the Eurocentric point of view. So that's sort of, I think, why so many people are frustrated with this. Like, it's this, and I don't think that the contestants themselves are, like, intentionally being, like, Mexican food is bad. I'm going to change it. It's it's like that, It I really think it's, like, this unconscious, like, oh, well, this is better, so like, I'm going to do this. But it's like when you do that, you're negating an entire cultural history and a significance of why something is the way that it is. It's one thing to, like, again, change some flavors, make a new idea. You can do that with using the same ingredients. The French do it all the time. And you get crazy different dishes. And they're delicious. You don't have to change the essence of something. To make it more comfortable for you. You can you can tweak some small aspects, but if you change like the core of the dish itself, it's no longer that dish. It's something entirely different. And quite frankly, I think more people are upset about the technical challenge and the showstopper than they are about the Bendel say. Um so with that being said, let's move on to the technical challenge. All right, so the contestants were tasked with making tacos entirely from scratch, meaning the tortillas, the beans, guacamole, steak, which I assume was supposed to be like fajitas or carne asada, and then pico de gallo. Now, I know I said I wasn't going to make fun of their pronunciation, but some of these were just too good to overlook, and I just in the kindest way. Um, so these are some of my favorite mispronunciations. Tortilla. Tortilla. That's actually pretty common in the South, so, like, I I don't want to give it a pass, but it's still funny. Uh, guacamole. 
that one was just I don't I don't know. And then Pico the Gallio. That was I I just I'm sorry. They were really funny. And these were my favorites that were just too good not to mention. Um, but yes, so first off, the taco recipe they gave is actually a little bit more Tex-Mex. But since Mexico is so broad, if somebody disagrees with me, please correct me. Um, my reasoning that it's more Tex-Mex is the amount of comino or cumin uh, that the recipe used. And typically when you have more comino, it's usually more Tex-Mex. Um, a lot of other Americanized versions of Mexican cuisine have this misconception that Mexico uses a ton of comino. That's the case at all. Um, it's usually just like a hint, a dash. It's not the forefront flavor. And the amount of comino that they were putting in their recipe makes me think that it's more Tex-Mex, or at least a more Americanized version of this. So... One th one of the things that a contestant did was gag at the quote spice level, and then they went to say, "Well, it's supposed to be Mexican, isn't it?" Um, and this is the same woman that peeled avocado like it was a potato, which is very unsafe because avocados are very slippery. So I don't know what she was thinking. Um, but let's let's unpack this for a minute. So Mexican food. Can be spicy, yes, but it doesn't have to be. Mexico is a gigantic country with so many different regional variants, and that spiciness is more in the central and northern regions of the country. The closer you get to the Yucatan and Central America, the less spicy it is, and it almost has more of like a Caribbean influence to it in some regions, not all. Um, sorry. And like on that note, I'm like completely, I'm like completely unrelated to this contestant. Mexico is one of the only countries in Latin America that has really spicy food, and a lot of my friends from Argentina, Venezuela, and Colombia like do not like spicy food because it also isn't part of their cultural cu cuisine, or at least not their family's cooking. So like, there's this misconception that Latin American food across the board is incredibly spicy, but it's not. Um, but anyway, I digress. So themselves have a super interesting history. The food was, of course, a staple in pre-Hispanic times because the tortilla is sort of like the shuttle on which the food gets to your mouth. And I truly could not think of a more eloquent way to say that. And I apologize if I just made you cringe intensely. But it's true. Much like the dumpling that is a staple in Asian or even Eastern European cuisine, it facilitates the food as ritual. If your dumpling dough isn't just right, everything falls apart. And, you know, this is kind of toss like toss it out but since the tortilla or if you want to keep with a dumpling analogy is the base it needs to be somewhat mild flavors that your filling can shine um whereas the tortilla or dumpling dough is like the supporting flavor right um yes anyway so back on topic there are numerous combinations that could be made from tacos nopales or cactus uh, you can have squash, you can have huitlacoche, or which is like a corn fungus. Sometimes it's called corn smut, which I don't really like that term. It just reminds me of like the whole literary genre, which like totally different vibes. Anyway, you could also have escamoles or ant larvae, which is actually a delicacy in most regions. 
And then eventually we get the meats that people are more familiar with. So originally, of course, there wasn't any sour cream or lettuce until tacos were introduced to the Americans in the early 20th century. But with the arrival of Spain and their Moorish influence, we eventually get things like al pastor, which is pork, typically with pineapple, depending on the region that you're in. Um, and there's there's more of a focus on these types of animals, something that's um, palatable <laughs> to the colonizers who, you know, quite frankly, had a queasy stomach, you know, um, the fillings of tacos before it could be like anything, um, any, any part of the animal, <laughs> waste not, want not, um, that sort of, of mentality. But it's also, you know, it goes back to the cultural connection to the land. But uh, now, or sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Once the Spaniards become part of the picture, there's more of a focus on cow, pork, and fish as the as like the filling ingredients, for lack of better terms, for the tacos. And I'm gonna give a quick shout out to my friend Hector for trying to trick me into eating trivitas and head, but my Spanish was not that bad to where I couldn't understand your order. But I tried the trivitas as an adult, and it actually became my favorite. And I'm also going to throw in there that bone marrow tacos, which I accidentally ordered thinking it was something else because even though I could understand Spanish at the time, my reading was garbage. But 10 out of 10 would recommend bone marrow tacos with fresh with fresh chicharrones. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm getting a little bit off topic. It's been a long day. Anyway, so back to our timeline of tacos. They don't really become popular outside of Mexico until in the early 1900s, and this is probably closer to the 1920s when more Americans were actually open to Mexican cuisine, and this is really part of um, different diplomacy efforts between the United States and Mexico, um, trying to build that connection because, of course, the United States is always worried about communism, and since at the time that this was happening, your post-1920 revolution, all that whole deal, um, so at this point, the ingredients become even more Americanized. And then by the 1940s, we actually see the emergence of the Juanchi taco that Americans tend to think is actually authentic. But I'm going to toss it to Keith from Try Guys and his song, White People Taco Night, to fill you in on the rest. If you haven't listened to it, you definitely should. Um, but anyway, back to our bakers. That was a whole long explanation of saying, like, why I don't think these are traditional tacos. Um, their next task, in addition to sort of seasoning and cooking the meat, was actually the pressing of tortillas. Most of them actually did pretty good. If you want to press and you don't have a tortilla press, you can actually use a plate. But if you want to get real culturally accurate, you got to be like this little abuela, patting those bitches out and then tossing them on a hot kamal and then flipping them with your bare hands like there's no tomorrow and you just can't feel the heat. Um... I will get there eventually, like the, you know, touching the, especially with the oil. Um, but anyway, something they did get wrong in this is not using any oil in their pan. There needs to be like a little bit of oil just like to coat that bottom um, of the pan. Typically, you would actually use a kamal. Um, and what it does is it keeps the, keeps the, the corn tortillas moist and flexible when you're making your tacos or whatever you're using your tortillas for. The trick, though, is not to over fry them or over oil pan. Most of their tortillas were far too dry. 
So either they were cracking or completely falling apart. That being said, Berthias in general, they seem very simple, but they're actually kind of tricky if you've never done it before. Um, and I think this is where people are like, what does tacos have to do with baking? I think their idea of baking was the, the tortilla itself, which I, I wouldn't really call it baking either. <laughs> the jokes in this section were just so bad. And normally I I like honey humor when it's based on food, but it's pretty clear that anytime Great British Bake Off does any sort of ethnic week, that the demographic they're trying to, you know, appreciate really becomes the butt of the joke. It's never that way when it's a European culture at the center. It's very clear that that never happens. It's usually the jokes are based in the puns related to, like, the titles of the food or, like, what it's called. Um, and really, all this does, again, is reaffirm colonial hierarchies, which has, of course, racial implications. And some of the comments of the contestants that they made, like, the comments they made, um, they were just downright uncalled for it. And I really don't want to repeat it simply because I personally just don't think this is the space for that type of thinking. And I don't want to reproduce that that type of violence. But uh yeah, there this technical challenge was pretty rough and rough in the sense of watching them do it, not rough in the sense of like the actual task at hand. Some of them actually made tostadas instead of tacos. I mean, it's like a little close, but definitely not close at all at the same time. And uh, something that, that did catch me during this challenge was the judges' critiques. Um, they said to a lot of the contestants that their tacos were too small, and I would actually kind of disagree with them. The concept of a giant taco is primarily American, and a smaller taco is more common in Mexico. Um, in the States, we call those tiny tacos street tacos, but in reality, it's like the normal size of a taco. <laughs> um, and most tacos in Mexico are served with onion, cilantro, and lime. And whatever salsa the stand, truck, or restaurant has, maybe you'll see a couple thin radish slices, depending on where you're at. But really, the, the showcase is like the meat itself and the deliciousness of the meat. Um, I don't really think it's common to have all those extra toppings like we saw here, uh, at least to my knowledge, seemed much more Americanized. And like that in itself, the fact that the recipe was Americanized, it's truly, it's just negating an entire cultural history within Mexico. And it's not, it's not Mexican week, right? Like this, this is, this is not Mexican food. Um, my take is that they were looking to Tex-Mex, which again, is not, it's not Mexican food. It's delicious. And it is a great fusion cuisine, but if the whole point of this challenge or this episode was to look to Mexico, um, I think there were so many better, so many better routes that they could have gone through. Hell, they could have even done tamales as as the technical challenge. Like that is very difficult. It's a traditional food. It varies by region. I mean, you could have tamales, you could have ayacas, which like there's a whole argument. They're not tamales because they're in a banana leaf. I don't care. I'm not looking at that right now. But like there were so many other like if they if they were looking to the United States, like that in itself is not a good reflection of Mexican history because again, it's it's not Mexico. But yeah, so I think I think the fact that they're in my 
viewpoint, clearly looking to Tex-Mex is just, again, it's negating that entire cultural history. And it's like, I feel like it's really just lumping together two very different cultural contexts. Um, yeah. But anyway, let's move on to the showstopper. So in the showstopper, this is their final challenge. The contestants were tasked with making tres leches cake. And this is actually probably one of my favorite desserts other than flan. Um, it is very sweet. Also has a little bit of fruity finish because at least in my experience with it, it usually has pineapple and or strawberries. Um, at least the ones that I've had anyway. But to, just a quick, funny anecdote. When I was a kid, my grandpa had me convinced that Tres Leches was cow, goat, and chihuahua milk. And when I looked at him with those confused childhood eyes, he proceeded to tell me that it's easy to milk the cows and sheep, or sorry, the cows and goat, but it's more special because the chihuahua milk is so hard to get. And I was just like, okay, I guess that makes sense. Just the innocence of being a trusting child, a far too trusting child. I was that kid that was considered gullible because when adults would tell me things, I would just assume that they were being serious and that whatever they were saying was fact because would they be lie to me like about cake? Like, the, you know, like, why would they? Um, and then, of course, when I told my dad, he laughed at me and was like, your grandpa is just yanking your chain. Like, that's not. But it was I thought it was cute. But anyway, <laughs> so. For this challenge, I was actually surprised that the judges made them do tiered cakes, considering one, Tresleches cakes are actually pretty heavy because of the milk, and then two, because they're soaked in milk, they're very soft. So that just seemed a little unfair, in my opinion. Um, and again, and like personally, I like I like my Tresleches a little on the milkier side, so having to stack this it seemed very improbable to say the least but um yeah one one thing that did stand out to me during this round is the contestant who chose to do a mesoamerican pyramid and let me let me pause and i'm gonna play a clip for you all right it is on the slightly longer side so fingers crossed my episode isn't taken down for it Spikes. Kevin is undertaking a vast geometric construct. My test letter sponge will be soaked in fluffy milk, and I'll be building it in four square tins to make an Aztec pyramid temple. Why an Aztec? Well, there's a bit of overlap, really, isn't it? Like, what? Excuse me? The way that they laughed at this, I was just like, you've got to be fucking kidding me, right? Like, yeah, there are similarities between Maya and Aztec pyramids. They are so different from each other. They're so distinct. You can tell the difference. Like, the only simil like the main similarity is that they're both stuffed pyramids. <laughs> the ornamental design and technique is very different and very unique to each cultural style. Um, so, uh, maybe it's just my art history brain as I'm reaching too far into this. But when I saw that, I was like, that's just so so problematic i mean that's like lumping all of mexican history into one thing like there are so many vast civilizations throughout mesoamerica 
<laughs> what? But um, yeah, I just that one I, that one just threw me, and I thought it was just entirely problematic because really, what it's doing is it's 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 condensing entire civilizations into one one style, one iconography. Um, yeah. I'm sure other people are like triggered by other things during this episode. So I would love it if people like sent me emails, commented on my Instagram post, because I really want to hear from y'all um, and what you were pissed off about. <laughs> but I also just didn't get for like all a lot of these contestants, they wanted to use chili like in Tres I don't understand that. Like desserts, they're not all meant to be spicy. And just because Mexican cuisine does have in some instances, spicy and sweet, like, you know, like the tahine on your fruit. That's not like the only thing that we do. And like, y'all literally just made pandul say, so like, you know, you know that you wouldn't do that. Like, I don't think I have ever seen tres with any sort of chile in it. Like, what? Um, that, that just didn't make any sense to me. Like, I made no sense but while i do have a lot to say about this and like i realize i'm getting i'm getting to the hour mark and i know you're probably like tired of listening to me rant about great british bake-off um there were two good ideas that i thought should get recognized so siabira's uh sweet corn tres leches and abdul's tia de muertos tres leches so sweet corn that is actually a pretty common flavor, and one of the most notable desserts are actually sweet corn tamales. It's a dessert where the, like the the masa is sweetened, and sometimes you can have like the chunks of corn. Sometimes there's like a corn paste in there. It kind of depends on where you're getting it from, um, but they're steamed in either banana leaves or corn husks. And I know she thought she was being creative, but again, this is actually a really well loved flavor. So I think she was definitely spot on, and the judges were actually, in my opinion, too harsh on her for that. Um, just because like, again, this, this flavor profile is kind of common and it's actually well left. I love sweet corn tamales. It's so good. I don't know how it would work in a, in a tres leches, but I'd be interested in trying it. Like, that was a good idea. And like her design was, was very simple. Um, it wasn't over the top. And I think that's like, that's in my opinion, kind of sticking to like the essence of, of the cake itself. Like they're meant, all the designs I have seen for are like very simple they're either using the fruit or like maybe like a couple little whipped cream flowers but i've never seen much more it's like it's meant to the dessert is you know it shines on its own um and then with with abdul he actually created a really like clean design and he even incorporated the marigolds which was a really nice touch um and so like you can tell that he did a little bit of research on the de muertos and, you know, like, instead of, I was kind of sad that he used, like, the traditional skulls that he probably picked out from, like, Halloween mold base, you know, instead of, like, that, that calavera design, which is, you know, or, you know, you might notice sugar skulls, um, which I thought was kind of sad, but maybe it was a timing thing. But uh, from what I, from what I can understand, like, I thought it was a pretty nice design. It was very simple. It was, again, keeping to that, that, like, let the let the dessert speak for itself kind of kind of vibe um yeah i thought that i thought they both did really good and i think the judges were a little unnecessarily necessarily harsh on both of them um especially with the sweet corn like again i love sweet corn tamales 
sweet corn is like delicious. There's even little sweet corn candies that I've had. Now those are sometimes covered in chili powder, but it's really good. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the mustache cake with the splatter paint. How is any of that Mexican inspired? Maybe he was an art historian and he knew that Jackson Pollock learned his experimental technique from David Alfaro Siqueiros, which I have an episode on him and you should check it out and I'll talk a little bit about the experimental uh, workshop. But, um, you know, I kind of doubt that seeing as hardly any art historians outside Latin Americanists know that Pollock learned from Siqueiros. And like, the mustache was clearly pulling from like that Zapatista stereotype. It's tired. It it also wasn't even the right style of mustache. That one that he used was clearly more associated with the French and British elite. Like that was just all around disappointing. <laughs> like, like, and I think that's kind of like that perfect example of like truly knowing nothing about what you're doing. Um or at least presenting that you know nothing about what you're doing. Not everybody in Mexico has a mustache like that. What? Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, some of those designs were just... They didn't make any sense. And I, I really think, like, this one in particular was was trying to, like, pull off of that stereotype and, like, that mustache. Like, we often see it in like Halloween costumes of like the like the like the the Mexican costume where there's, you know, you got pistols and like the little, you know, I forget, I think it's called like the bandero. I'm I'm not quite sure. It's like where they hold the bullet casings. Um but I think that's what he was pulling from, which is super harmful, super problematic. And like, bro, really? But um yeah, like the the whole episode, if if you have skipped through this, ep- if you've skipped through my podcast episode, basically the entire episode of Great British Bake Off's Mexican Week, it was filled with these really subtle and coded jabs at Mexican culture and Mexican people. And like, there was like the one part where like, he had fucking maracas like going around and like, trying and like making everybody uncomfortable and like and it's the fact that not only like the writers but like even some of the contestants were really pulling from like these stereotypes of of mexico and that with the pendulce challenge like you're changing the entire base like those contestants that were making the pendulce more like cake like that defeats the purpose of it you're negating an entire cuisine. Like, you're supposed to be embracing it, not erasing it. So, like, that in itself is is really problematic. And it's just, again, it's really upholding that colonizer point of view where you must change to make me comfortable. And, like, the fuck? Um, and then, again, with, like, the, the taco rounds. Like, the, the tacos they made, like, I feel, I feel like I made a pretty good point in that they're, they're Tex-Mex. Um, and again, if you disagree with me, like, please, please let me know. But it's like, that's not, that's not Mexican cuisine, um, at all. So, or it's at least it's a very warped understanding. It's a very Americanized take, which I mean, I guess makes sense because 
you know, like the fact that they're having to make this more palatable for the colonizer. Like, I guess I'm not so surprised that you ha- you go to an Americanized version of it to make it more pleasurable for you to eat. But like, there are so many delicious tacos that they could have made. So many delicious ones. And that like would still be friendly for like a non-adventurous eater. Um, so, so yeah. And then again, with, with the tres leches, like some of them just, I don't, I don't see the need in making it a tiered cake. I've never seen tres leches as a tiered cake before because it's, it's meant to be more like, like, um, a moist kind of, I'm sorry if you hate that word. I'm so sorry. I know a lot of people hate that word. Um, but it's meant to be like spongy and milky and all of the the tres leches that I've had before is like you know it's delicious it's it's simple it's not meant to be these elaborate designs it's it's meant to be comfort um and I think I think a couple of them did that with their designs um the flavors themselves wasn't a fan of a lot of them um that's my personal opinion please tell me if you disagree but I guess the whole point of this is that there's a difference between appreciation and like like embracing a, a culture that's that's you know like different from your own and a clear erasure and disregard for the traditions you're supposed to be studying. And I, d- I definitely think that after watching this episode, I definitely have a lot more empathy for um, the the viewers who are personally harmed by Japan Week. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. Maybe I'm reaching. Maybe I'm not. But like, I don't know. This episode, I've seen some interesting reactions online. And I I would really love to hear your thoughts. Uh, so definitely email me. I know that I was kind of feel like I got on a tangent in a couple times. I, f- I was trying to weave in culinary history throughout. Um, this is sort of a, a step outside of my scholarly realm. Um, I'm sure by this point, you all are familiar with the fact that I study Mexican art history, um, which is very different from culinary history. So Shout out to Shields and your study on Mexican food um, in art. So if you ever want to come on and talk about that, let me know. Um, but anyway, so I hope you can at least maybe appreciate or laugh along or maybe cry along with me as you were watching this episode. Um, I'd really like to hear your thoughts. And if you disagree with me on anything, please let me know. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's that for Great British Bake Off quote Mexican week and really the disaster that it was uh not Mexican at all not at all um on a lighter note I mean I guess it's cool that they're trying to appreciate but it was just done so so poorly um so yeah that's that's my take on it I know I'm kind of rambling now but yes email me your thoughts comment on the post let me know I I really want to have a conversation if you haven't done so already, make sure you're following me on social media at Artwatch Podcast. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, and I'm on TikTok now. Um, if you don't 
have a social media, but you want to be included in the conversation that we had here today, you can always email me, artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. And I would love to continue this conversation. So let me know your thoughts. But I hope you all have a wonderful week and I will see you next time. And then don't forget, the same day that this episode drops is the start of that really cool giveaway. Check it out on social media. I will see you all next time.